All right. How many of you have ever been sued by someone else? Anybody? One person. All right. How many of you have ever sued anybody else? Nobody. All right. So you may think, what does this passage have to do with me today? But uh, me, I'm 45 years old. And until I was 44 years old, I would have been able to say the exact same thing. I have never been sued. I have never sued anyone else until uh, a little over a year ago when the lease ended on the house that my wife were renting before we moved in the house that we bought just uh, over the way here. Um, the uh, property management company decided to keep $413 of my $1,900 deposit. And as I got to look at the reasons why they had kept uh, our part of this deposit back, uh, the, the majority of it was for marks and scratches on the wall that were supposedly left by my children and um, for yard maintenance that was not done. And I'll be honest, if it was just kind of the marks on the wall, I probably would have let it go and just moved on with my life. But that very small portion of the yard maintenance part, me being having a degree in agronomy and soil and a former golf course superintendent, I just could not let go, all right? It was just not going to happen. So I, uh, I called the property management company and just said, hey, I, I want to dispute this. I, I think, uh, you know, this is kind of ridiculous. Like, I have a video of, like, how the house looked, how the yard looked. Hey, here's a note for you. Whenever you move in, video everything. Whenever you move out, video everything just in case. And I'd done this. I had this five-minute video, everything on the wall, on the ceiling, everything, right? And I said, hey, I disagree with this. And I waited two weeks, didn't hear anything back. I reached out again, didn't hear anything back. Reached out again, didn't hear anything back. So six weeks after this, I finally said, hey, if you don't respond to me, I'm going to have no choice but to go to court. I got a response within five minutes. And it said, here's the number for my lawyer. And I was like, all right. So I called a friend of mine who happens to be a lawyer and just said, hey, like, how do I do this? Like, I've never done this before, but I'm kind of intrigued by this whole process. You know, I watched people's court growing up and, uh, you know, I've seen enough Judge Judy. This seems kind of fun. Uh, and I will, as a, as a, I will, as a side note, say immediately after I filed the lawsuit, I got a call from people's court and they said, do you want to be on our show? And I said, Oh, I don't know. Let me think about this. Give, give me the weekend and call me back. And they never called back. I was so bummed about the whole process because I had decided I was going to do it. You get 500 bucks just for appearing, right? So I was like, are you going to be on TV? Like, how awesome would that be? Um, but it didn't happen. So needless to say, like, um, you know, time goes by a few months. We finally get this arbitration case where you go, you go, the judge, they send you to an arbitrator. It's all done via Zoom right now. And they try to settle it. And he's like, do you want to settle? I'm like, sure, I'll settle it. She gives me all my money back. And she goes, I'm not doing that. And he says, all right, we get a court date. So then we get to the court date. And uh, she, had, she had a lawyer at this time. And the lawyer tries to abate and dismiss the entire case because I did not fill out one little piece of paperwork correctly. And the judge is like, well, she is right. You didn't fill it out correctly. So I'm going to let you go back and fill it correctly and do an amended statement of claim, which then delayed it even more. So now we're like eight months into this whole thing, right? And this is how long it takes, right? 
eight months into it, so we finally get the Zoom court case happens. The trial lasts 90 minutes, okay? Like, I get to present everything. They have their star witness, all those things. And finally, at the end of the day, the judge rules in my favor for like 85% of the money. And it still took another few months to, to get all that in. So I'm just going to tell you, if you are ever thinking about going to Kate, you know, for $413, it took me 10 months of my life to get a decision on this thing, okay? So it will always cost you more time and money than you ever imagined. I know we have lawyers in the room, so please forgive me when I say this. The only people who get rich from this whole thing are the lawyers, okay? Uh, that's how this works. Again, I have businesses, so I, I, I get how this works, all right? Um, yeah, I could tell lots of stories. But why do I tell you all this? Because this is just one of those super practical passages in the Bible, okay? Today, we're just coming to something that's super practical. There's going to be no deep theological revelations because we are just dealing with people going to court in the local church in Corinth, and there's a lot of instruction for us. So though you've never sued anybody or haven't been sued yet, one day you may find yourself in a situation like this, and you need to know the Bible speaks directly to this situation in a very practical way, and these are going to be your guidelines of how you would handle this. So the passage reads, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. There's two pieces of background and perspective I want to give us this morning that really shed some light on what's happening in this passage. And one is what's going on in Corinth, right? So Corinth is a city next to Athens. And we don't have a lot of documentation of the courts and the trial system in Corinth, but we have a massive amount of historical documents of what the court system was like in Athens. And so much like where we get our system of law from, uh, if you had a dispute with somebody, you would go to uh, a local judiciary and they would sign, assign an arbitrator for you to see if you could settle the case. And if you couldn't work it out, then they would send you to something called the 40. And these 40 people who were hired, who were uh, at least 60 years old, who had been involved um, in life, who had been involved in the system for a long time, they would help you arbitrate the case. And if you still could not come to a resolution, then it went to a jury trial. And the minimum jury that you would have uh, listening to your case would be 200 people, okay? But there are cases where the jury was as large as 6,000 people. Could you imagine trying to convince 6,000 people that you are right so that you could get a judgment? So what is taking place here in Corinth is that 
all of these issues, and sometimes very petty issues, sometimes very serious issues, very civil serious issues, it's becoming everybody's business. This is what everybody did for fun. This was everyone's Judge Judy. This was everyone's Jerry Springer. This was everyone's Maury Povich. This was everyone's people's court, right? That everybody got involved in these situations and it was just yep, 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 gossip, talking about getting all the dirt, all the scoop, all the time with everyone and it never stopped. And so what is happening is there are people in the church who are going to these public law courts and all of these things in the church are just becoming public fodder and public gossip for the entire city. And, and so in, instead of these things promoting love and unity and peace, as we see Paul and, and, the, and the gospels and Jesus talk about and all the scriptures talk about, the exact opposite is happening. All of this dirty laundry is getting aired in the public and people are going, well, look at these Christians. I mean, they say they're about love. They say they're about unity. But look at this silly thing they're arguing about over here. Like they shouldn't be arguing about this. If these people really loved one another, if Jesus made this drastic change in their life, they wouldn't be arguing about these things. And so all of these things were getting pushed out into the public and it was putting a, a bad mark and a bad stain on the church. Now, in light of this, I want to give this caveat. This is not saying that there, is, there are times when the church should not have its dirty laundry aired, okay? Paul is not advocating for a cover-up in any way, shape, or form. If you've, if you've been around the news in the last 10, 15, 20 years, basically any part of your life, you know that there are some horrible atrocities committed by the church and inside the church when it comes especially to the areas of sexual abuse and where there have been cover-ups inside the church um, whether it be Protestant or Catholic, trying to keep this stuff from getting out there uh, into the public sphere. And so Paul is not advocating, nor am I advocating in any way, shape, or form that we should cover up serious criminal matters. In the exact opposite, we as followers of Jesus must be concerned about justice. God is a God of justice. God is specifically a God of justice, and his heart is favorably inclined toward the poor, toward the widow, toward the oppressed, and toward the abused. And so we need to make sure, and we as pastors and elders of this church are under ethical and lawful obligations that if we are aware of a crime that has been committed and you inform us, we are mandatory reporters. We will report those things because we are required by law, but also we are required by God's law to make sure justice is done. So if you ever find yourself in a situation, you ever find yourself in a church and you hear people trying to cover up criminal matters. You need to be an advocate for the victim and you need to make sure and to stress and to push them to take these things to the court so that justice can be done.
Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, this is why the state exists. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants. Agents of wrath to bring punishment on, on the wrongdoer. Here in this passage, it goes on for a few more verses. God says there are two functions of government, to, to punish evil and to praise the good. If you want to know what government is supposed to be about, when you go to the polls and the voting booths uh, in the future, the government should do two things. It should punish evil and it should praise good. Besides that, it should basically just stay out of the way. Okay, that is how God has designed government. And I, th there is this real tension in church at times between grace and justice. Okay, because we preach and we teach grace and mercy. And we should preach and teach grace and mercy. And, but sometimes when we are close to someone and we know someone and they have committed a serious offense, a serious crime that should be punished according to the laws of this land, we go, ooh, like I know this person. And, and, we, and we lean into that grace and we lean into that mercy sometimes too much. But we lean into it too much at the expense of the victim. Because in the same way that we can preach grace and mercy to the one who has committed the crime, we are also just as responsible for trying to deliver justice to the victim of the crime. And sometimes that is an incredible tension that pulls at both sides of us. It's really hard to hold on to both sides. And it's what takes incredible wisdom and it takes incredible discernment and it's just not always going to be easy. But know this, it is possible to preach and give grace to the sinner and also deliver justice to the victim. And of those who are followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility to do both, no matter how hard and how difficult it is. So we have the, the, the Corinthian perspective of what's going on in the city of Corinth, but there's also another perspective here that's really influencing what Paul is saying to the church based on his Jewish background. Remember that Paul was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He is steeped in the law and tradition as much as anyone in this time period. And it's, it's very interesting that if you don't know this, and I, I, did, I actually did not know some of this, is that um, <clears throat> Jewish people very rarely, if ever, went to a public law court. They settled almost all of their issues inside of the synagogue. 
And they would go in there and they would dispute matters. And they did this to maintain unity, uh, to maintain the brotherhood, to maintain the bond in the community. But there was even a higher reason why they did that. Because they believed that God's word, the revelation of God, the law of God, the Old Testament had all the answers to the problems of their life. It had an answer to all their family problems, all the problems on a social level, cultural and economic level. And so for them, they could not ever imagine going to a pagan court to find answers when God's law had all the answers in the 613 commandments found in the Old Testament and in all the examples they had given. They actually believed and stated that it was a blasphemy to God. They believe you were blaspheming God if you tried to go to a, a secular court to have anything decided in a court of law. And because they were so strong and so firm in this conviction, most governments just allowed them to decide their own cases. And we see a great example of this in Scripture, right? Right? When Jesus is captured, where does he go first? He goes to the high priest. It is not until he has gone to that court system that he is then delivered into the hands of Pontius Pilate. But there was one thing the governments did not allow the Jewish people to decide in their own courts of law. And what was that? Execution, right? That is why they have to go to Pontius Pilate. But we see this play itself out in this court case with Jesus, these two court cases. But so in Paul's mind, he's, he's steeped in this Jewish tradition. He's steeped in the law of God. And he believes that all the answers can be found in the law of God for followers of Jesus to be able to resolve all of their issues. He believed they were fully qualified to make these decisions. I mean, look what he says right here in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6. Now, I want you to read this because he, he says some things to them that apply to us that, that I don't think we, we think about enough. We don't think about this eschatological reality. I know it's a big word. We don't, we don't think about our, our, our big standing in the world, how God actually views us. We see ourselves as kind of meek and mild and lowly. But I just want you to hear the words that Paul uses describing these followers of Jesus and their standing and what it is that you and I, who are followers of Jesus, what we will be doing when Jesus comes back and sets everything right in the world. This, this might make some of you very uncomfortable, but he says, he says in verse two, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? When Jesus comes back, you and I, we will judge the entire world. We will judge the sins of the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to trial trivial cases? He says, you have this standing as the children of God. This is going to be your role. This is going to be part of your ruling over the new heavens and the new earth. Are you, you, are you guys kidding me that you can't dissolve, you know, resolve some disputable matters in the church about property rights? Do you not know that we are to judge 
angels. You, these celestial beings, you and I are going to be over them and we are going to judge the angels. These spiritual beings, which could at this moment totally wipe us out if they were let off the leash, right? I mean, they could do anything to us that they wanted to because of their power and might and majesty. But yet in the new kingdom, the new reality, we will rule and reign. We will judge them. This is our standing before God. And so Paul says to them, how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Like it just made no sense to Paul that you would take matters that can be resolved by the word of God into these secular courts where you don't know that you will get justice or not because their law is not God's law. And so, but but you might be asking yourself, but where does this fit into the book of Corinthians? Because Isaiah last week talked about sexual immorality. Kevin is going to talk about sexual immorality next week. Like, it just kind of seems out of place that all of a sudden we get this passage about lawsuits and believers. But if you think about the overarching context of the book of Corinthians, it actually makes sense. Because in everything that we've covered so far, and everything that we will be covering the Corinthians, what you're going to see is all of these people were bringing their old way of life into the church, and Paul was saying, stop it. Because you're not those people anymore. They were bringing worldly wisdom into the church, and what did Paul say? You need godly wisdom. You need to quit looking through uh, the lens of the Stoics. You need to quit looking through the, the Sophia, through the lens of wisdom. You need to quit looking through the old lens of sexual immorality. You need to quit bringing all these old things into the church. And you need to start embracing and holding your new life, your new identity in Christ, which we're going to see here in verse 11. And so these people are so used to doing things a certain way that Paul is correcting their conduct and helping them to see that they are a part of this new eschatological future kingdom of Christ coming reality. And he wants them to embrace that so that they can live in such a way to bring honor and glory to God in building the kingdom of God in this life. But the question then becomes, in a very practical sense, what what, what do you do if you ever find yourself in a disputable matter, right? Like if you ever find yourself at odds with another brother or sister in the church in an, in an issue that, that could potentially go to court, right? What do you do? And so as I, as I thought about this, the, the best example that I could come up with was a situation that happened between me and Kevin about eight or nine months ago. All right. So one of the things, and I have his permission to tell the story. Um, so um, one of the things uh, that Kevin and I both really like to do is smoke meat. All right. I have a big, huge smoker, and many of you have had the privilege of partaking 
of the delicacies that come off my Weber smoky bullet charcoal smoker. Kevin has a Camp Chef wood pellet smoker that he loves to smoke meat on all the time, and many of you have shared in that. Well, several months ago, we were having a big elder and family get-together over at my house, and for all the people that were there, my smoker, even though it's the biggest one you can get of the charcoal variety, just did not have enough room to hold all the meat. So Kevin said, hey, why don't you come in your big green truck and grab my smoker and take it over to your house and we'll just smoke meat all day long. And I said, that sounds like a wonderful plan. So we go, we get Kevin's smoker, we bring it to my house. We smoke meat for like 10, 11 hours all day long. It is the day that the Lord hath made and we rejoiced and we're exceedingly glad in it and ate ourselves into a food coma, okay? And, um, and so we had a good time. Well, about four days later, Kevin, having recovered from his food coma, said, hey, I have a hankering for some more smoked meat. I need my smoker back, okay? So I said, no problem. My son and I, we load it back in my truck. And as I'm going east on 39th Ave, going to hang a left onto 34th Street, heading to Kevin, I hear the most horrible sound in the world, boom, 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 in the back of the bed of my truck. And lo and behold, Kevin's smoker is no longer upright in the bed of my truck because I did not secure it as tightly as I thought I had. As I, I just didn't do a good job. And uh, I pull over to the side of the road, and I'm like, oh, God, how is this conversation going to go? Because here, here's what I know about Kevin and his smoker. Like, I know that Kevin saved his pennies for a while to acquire this smoker. I also know how much time, effort, and energy and research Kevin was smoker. You don't know why? Because Kevin talked about the smoker all the time, right? He talked about all of its features and its wonderful benefits and how it was better than all the other things and other things. And I'm going, oh, God, I cannot believe I just did this. And so I call him on the phone. I said, dude, I'm like right beside your house. But before I get there, I just need you to know that I just broke your smoker. And, uh, but don't worry, I'm, I'm going to pay for it. Like, I, I know it's bad, but it's, it's just bad. And so we get over there and we pull it out. And, you know, if you've ever seen Kevin Smoker, it's got this big smokestack out the side. All this thing's like bent over to the side, you know, and it's just in bad shape. It's busted up. And, you know, and much to Kevin's, uh, you know, credit, you know, he did his best to get a hammer and bang out all the dents and try to fix it, but it just wasn't happening. So I did. I, I ended up buying Kevin a new smoker. And if you ever come over to my house and you see this busted up smoker, that's the one that I dropped. And it's a great lesson to me to learn in life to always secure the smoker. But yet it still works really well. And uh, many of you have had lots of good uh, meat off of that smoker as well. So now I just have two smokers. One's just a little more banged up than the other. And you're going, well, Daniel, this is not a, uh, this is not a disputable matter. Well, but let's just imagine I didn't do the right thing. And I was, gonna, and I was like, I'm not going to pay you back for your smoker. It wasn't my idea for, you to bring, for me to bring the smoker to my house. You asked me to get your smoker and to bring it back, and then you asked me to bring it back, so why should I be responsible for your smoker? So let me put this to you. If that was brought to you in the church, according to the law of God, what scripture, if any, would you give us to resolve this matter? Does the word of God have an answer for this situation? I'll be super impressed if anybody knows where the scripture is. Does anybody know? Does anybody don't dare take a stab? 
Anybody? What if I offered money? Would you take a stab then? Huh? If I offered 20 bucks? Huh? You want the broken smoker? No. That's good. No. I had to think about that. I thought, uh, no, it, it works good enough. Look at what it says in Exodus 22, 14, and 15. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So what God's word is saying to us and how this is resolved and how I knew that I was responsible is because if, if you borrow something from someone and I have decided to take care of it and the owner is not around, it is fully my responsibility. Whatever happens to it, I am on the hook for it. That is why I knew I had to pay Kevin back that money and it was never even an issue. However, let's say Kevin was over at my house and let's say Kevin and I put the smoker in there together and then Kevin and I put the smoker in there, we secured it and then we went back to his house and he was with me in the truck. At that point, God says, I, I actually have no responsibility because it was not mine to take care of. It was him as the owner. And so this is just one of those very practical things of the 613 commandments down in the law of God where the law of God has the answers for us as the church how to resolve issues like this in the church. And you may say, well, Daniel, that's fine between you and Kevin, but what if, there, what if it was something like <clears throat> Amazon and Apple, right? Where you had like two believers, two followers of Jesus. Like those things are so complicated with patent law and copyright law and infringement and intellectual property. Like how would all that get resolved? Let me tell you, there are ministries out there who resolve major issues like that. There's a place called Peacemaker Ministries, Ken Sandy. Um, I will just tell you as a practical book, one of the books you should all have in your library is The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. It will help you in resolving disputes with other human beings as a follower of Jesus better than any book that I know of. It is the most practical book for how to, to learn how to confess your sin, to confess wrongdoing to one another. Uh, like, for example, like anytime you confess your sin, don't ever use and, if, or but, all right? You need to say, I sinned against you in this way, period, full stop. Not, I sinned against you in this way, but if you didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that right? That's how it usually goes, right? Full stop. Confess your sin. But these men are, and women are professional lawyers, and they resolve multi-million dollar legal cases inside the church for believers, and it's an incredible ministry. So you can go to places like that and keep these things out of the court for a lot less money and a lot less headache and a much quicker time frame. <clears throat> and so 
you are going to find yourself at some point in a disputable matter. Let me just say for you who are, who are going to be lawyers and aspiring to be lawyers, if you are dealing with brothers and sisters in Christ, you have an obligal and uh, a moral obligation to encourage them to go to their church first to have this resolved before you take this into the court. Now, you can be a part of that process and having this resolved in the church, but you should not encourage them to go to a civil court first until you have had a chance to resolve this in the church court because that is a, a responsibility that we have as followers of Jesus. But as I thought about this a little bit more, I want to piggyback on the verses that Isaiah used last week in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. I, I had never viewed these verses in this way, but just read this with me now when you see how uh, Jesus tells us to resolve these matters in the church. Look at Matthew 18. <clears throat> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. For me, this gave me an insight into Revelation, this court thing that I'd never thought about. Because usually when we talk about Matthew 18, 15 through 20, we're talking about we know that someone is in sin, and so we are to go and confront them one-on-one, -on -one, and if they don't repent of their sin, then we take someone along with us. If that doesn't work, then we get the church involved because that is the step that Jesus lays out here. But that's not actually the context to which Jesus says. He doesn't say, if you know someone is in sin, go and confront them. But it says, if someone has sinned against you. And so I think there's a really strong case to be made here to apply this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 to this passage. Because look at what it said. You go through this process. You try to resolve it, this disputable matter with your brother. They've sinned against you. And if it doesn't work, then you take one or two other people along, and if that doesn't work, you get the church itself involved. And whatever decision the church makes in this matter, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So I think God honors and respects the decisions of the local church in this matter, and I think we should as well. And I think it could greatly change um, how we interact with one another, but also how the world interacts with us. Because one of the things you may not know, and I did not know this until I was talking to someone this week who's incredibly well-versed um, in these issues of lawsuits and believers, is that after this time, the church actually started doing this. And the court systems were so clogged up in and around Rome and the courts could be bought in such a way that people were not getting justice that once they saw the believers start doing this, non-believers actually started bringing their cases to the church to have their judgments, their, their civil matters resolved in the church because they knew that they could get equity, they could get 
honesty and it would be fair and it would be just. And so people started becoming followers of Jesus because of the testimony to how Christians use the law of God to decide civil matters and people who were not believers saw that true justice was being given to them according to the law of God. This is an, I mean, just think of that testimony to the world, that the world would bring their issues to the church to be resolved by the word of God. We are not beyond that today. But the question is, are we actually setting the example to give the world the opportunity to bring those things to us? Are we known as people who have our issues resolved in this way? At the end of the day, you may have to make a hard decision if you ever find yourself in a disputable matter. And Paul says this here in verse 7 when he says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? It is it just sucks when you don't get justice, doesn't it, right? Like when you know someone has really wronged you, when you know someone has done you wrong and you know they did... They deserve a consequence for it. To not get that sense of justice is a terrible feeling. But at the end of the day, Paul appeals to the church and says, you know, if this person still doesn't listen, rather than going to the public courts in this civil matter, might it not just be better for you to be wrong and be defrauded? Now, again, let, let me say this. If this is a systemic, systematic issue repeated by this person, or if it is a criminal issue, I, I, I don't think this is where we say, no, we don't go to court, because at some point, justice has to be done. But there, there is a point before that in certain issues where we just need to go, you know what? I'm just going to let this matter slide. Because... Proverbs says things about, you know, overlooking an offense and how it's to your credit and to your glory to overlook an offense. Jesus overlooked our offenses in being willing to die for us. Now, again, this is a matter of great discernment, of great wisdom, of great prayer, and maybe great fasting to get to this point to decide this. There, I, I can't just give you a blanket, one-size-fits-all answer for this. But we know from Scripture in Isaiah 53, 7, speaking about Jesus 750 years before he took on flesh, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. Sometimes, so we open not his mouth. Sometimes we're just going to have to make the decision to be defrauded. And it's okay to make that decision. It's okay to let it slide. But yet, you may have to take a stand and not let it slide. I don't know what that's going to be for you. These issues can be varied and complex. There's also, though, a final warning to those 
who would be willing to defraud someone else. And, and we need to take this as, as a serious warning. I don't think right now any of you are intentionally or uh, de defrauding someone in a, in, in a legal or civil, civil sense, but maybe you're defrauding someone else um, in your family. Maybe you're defrauding your spouse. Maybe you're defrauding your children or your parents. Um, <clears throat> you know, I know there was once or twice that uh, I defrauded my parents by not being honest with them about what I did on the weekend when I was in college and uh, my, my record of going to class or maybe some of my grades, but I'm sure that applies to none of you here in this room uh, whatsoever. Um, but there's a great warning that Paul gives here to those who would defraud other, other followers of Jesus, other believers. And, and, and that, that's kind of where like you, you read this passage and you're like, you get the sexual immorality in chapter five. Then you get this whole lawsuit thing. How does this lawsuit thing and it all connect together? And so once you read it all in context, I think you now will see what it is. He says, why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So what he's doing, he is lumping those who would defraud other believers into this category with all of these other sins, wanting them to understand the seriousness of defrauding another fellow believer, of defrauding one of your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is as strong a warning as Paul can give to any believer who would intentionally defraud another believer in the church or in their family. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so he gives this great warning, but he gives this great warning with this great reminder of their standing of who they are in Christ Jesus. He says, don't act like that anymore. Don't bring those old ways of life into the church anymore because you are no longer those people. You are now children of the risen King. You are the brothers and sisters of King Jesus. Don't act that way anymore. Walk in the newness of life, for you have been buried and resurrected to walk in that new way of life. 